Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, Managing Editor at the Fried Egg, and today we dive into the world of disc golf architecture. You heard that right, disc golf. And it turns out to be a really interesting subject. But first, this episode is brought to you by the Fried Egg Pro Shop. You can find it at proshop.thefriedegg.com. We've got all sorts of things from tumblers to photography prints to cold weather gear, which might be relevant to a lot of people's situations right now. But today I'd like to point out our fried egg white Liam Polo. It's made by Beedratty, so you know it's high quality. You know it's made of Beedratty's famous Peruvian Pima cotton. So soft, so breathable. And it has the fried egg logo tastefully stitched into the pocket. It's just a great standard everyday polo fit for a bunch of different situations. So get your own at proshop.thefriedegg.com. Great way to support the pod. All right, so today's guest is John Hauck, who is widely regarded, even universally regarded, as the leading designer in disc golf. He's behind courses like Harmony Benz in Columbia, Missouri, Sela Ranch in Talco, Texas, and Hillcrest Farms on Prince Edward Island. These courses are considered to be among the very best in the disc golf world. And just last year, there was a tournament at Hillcrest Farms, and I'll put a link to a video of it in the show notes. I want you to see it. It's a pretty stunning place. So until recently, I had never really thought about disc golf architecture. And here I have to apologize to any listeners who are avid disc golfers. I have a great deal of respect for the sport, but I just don't know a whole lot about it. So parts of this episode might seem a little basic to you, but try my best. I was aware of disc golf. I just hadn't really put it together that the sport had to have something like its own tradition of design, just like golf does. And it turns out that the world of disc golf architecture has a lot in common with the world of golf architecture. Disc golfers love to talk about courses and rank courses. They travel to see new places. There's a healthy debate about what makes for good design and poor design. Disc golf even has its own issues with distance and technology and uh, the obsoleting of older courses and things like that. But there are also some big differences. There's a lot less money in disc golf, for better or for worse. From my perspective, maybe mostly for better. The courses are really natural. An abundance of trees is a good thing for disc golf because trees are the main hazard in the sport. The properties are pretty small because a disc doesn't travel as far as a golf ball. There doesn't need to be this intensively cultivated short crop turf because disc golfers are just standing on the ground instead of playing off of it. So maintenance is really manageable. Just about everybody walks. Golf style carts aren't available or even practical most of the time. And the green fees, I mean, a lot of disc golf courses are free to play, especially the ones on city land. Some do charge, but the rates are really low. One of John Houck's newer courses, Sela Ranch, charges $20 for unlimited play all day. And keep in mind that Sela Ranch is regarded as one of the best disc golf courses in the world, certainly one of the most ambitiously designed. So I find all of this incredibly appealing. I feel like golf could actually learn a good bit from disc golf. And at the same time, disc golf is at this interesting place in its history where it's growing, getting more popular, attracting more money. And that money, on the one hand, will allow architects like John Houck to do more and to realize their visions more fully. On the other hand, part of what's attractive about disc golf and part of what it does better than traditional golf 
is accessibility and affordability. So disc golf is going to have to figure out how much it really wants to change as it gets bigger. Anyway, that's why I wanted to talk to John Houck. And without further ado, here's my conversation with him. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So why don't we just start by uh, talking a little bit about your background in disc golf, the sport, and then how you got into disc golf course design. Sure. Um, Well, I loved Frisbee since I was a little kid. I I have a very clear recollection of being maybe in third grade and uh, playing catch with a friend and not not even wanting to catch it sometimes. I I just loved the way it would hover and land. I was just... Um, fascinated by it. So I, by the time I got to seventh, eighth grade, um, this was now mid seventies, ultimate was starting to get big. And, you know, so we learned about it and we would play, you know, two on two or three on three. Uh, I remember teaching myself uh, how to throw a sidearm, <laughs> uh, which took hours throwing the throwing my master frisbee into the garage and picking it up and throwing it again. Of course, now I can you know I can teach a kid how to do it in two minutes. Um, and by the time uh, I got out of college, I was very serious about it. You know, in those days, if you played frisbee, you did everything. So we did disc golf, we did freestyle, distance, maximum time aloft, all that stuff. Um, And by the time I got out of college, I actually had a chance to kind of make a living uh, doing freestyle demonstrations around the country. So at that point in my career, I was really focused on freestyle. Um, But it became clear uh, that disc golf was about to explode. And so uh, I ran my first disc golf uh, well, overall event that included disc golf in 1984. Uh, had to design the course for that event, and that was the beginning at Zil- Zilker Park in Austin, Texas. And um, as far as golf, you know, my dad started pulling me around in a little red wagon when I was five. <laughs> and uh, he always he always liked to be the first one on the course. So we were up early and he'd be out there and pull me along until I was old enough to start playing um, on my own. I will also never forget the day, I think we were on about hole 12 and I was, you know, probably give or take 150 and he and all his friends were around 60. And that was the day he told me that uh, the highest score doesn't win. So I almost gave up the sport that day but uh, <laughs> I hung in there and, you know, my, my whole thing was, was, was promoting the sport and trying to get more people involved. And to do that, we needed more courses. And so thankfully that's, you know, right around the time that people, particularly here in Texas, where I was at the time, uh, were really getting interested in it. And the, the phone started ringing and uh, we started putting in disc golf courses. So it sounds like you have a bit of a background in golf as well. 
when you started designing disc golf courses, were you drawing on some of your experience with traditional golf? Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, the disc golf world is a little divided. Some people think we're brothers or cousins, and some people think, you know, we might as well be disc golf and snowboarding. Uh, I certainly don't take that view. Uh, I also have a lot of respect for golf. I mean, there's there's a reason why it's one of the most popular sports uh, in the world. And, you know, 400 years of learning how to do things right. Clearly, there are things about disc golf that are very different, and we need to emphasize those. But there's so much about golf that we can learn from and incorporate or, or you know, use variations of. So it was really important to me to learn as much as I could about golf you know, learn which principles we could incorporate, which principles maybe we couldn't, which we could use um, varieties of. And so I've, I've always been a big advocate of learning from golf. And we'll get into some of those similarities and differences later on. I'm very curious to dig into the details there and, and talk about design. But just to begin with the basics, do disc golf courses usually have 18 holes? Well, that's so funny you, you uh, asked that because a statistic just came out last week where I would have said uh, easily yes, but apparently uh, we're give or take 50-50 or 60-40 between 18 and 9 or sometimes other numbers. I mean, we go, I think, as low as 3 or 4 and we go up to 27 um, there's a thing in Michigan where there's a lot of 24s. I don't know where that came from, but, um, 18, you know, for whatever reason, you, you may know the history of it better than I do, but, um, 18 is a, is a sacred number. And if we're not doing 18, we're usually doing nine. Gotcha. Okay. How long are disc golf courses typically? How long are the holes and what's the mixture of pars and, you know, what, what are we looking at? There? Well, the, the rule of thumb on, on distances was always about a third. Um, there have been substantial improvements and changes in our technology over the last 10, 20 years. So that's not so much the case anymore. I think when you're at the highest level, par threes are almost all going to be, you know, 270 to 370. Occasionally they'll be a little shorter. Occasionally they'll, they'll be a little higher. And we're talking feet here. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, feet. Yes, we do everything in, in uh, feet, uh, except in Canada where, where we have to convert from meters. And Europe, high Europe. So yes, but, but exactly. We typically use feet instead of yards. And so, you know, par four for us, typically about double that. So, uh, you know, 550 to 750 for the top players again. Par fives, uh, you know, 800 to 1100, typically that kind of thing. So, but yeah, discs are flying farther and that's that's been a real issue for us. I mean, I, I know uh, you all have uh, uh, an issue with older courses being somewhat obsolete. It, we have that problem times 10. Oh, we'll, we'll dig into that later for sure. What do the pins look like uh, in disc golf? They're these baskets or, or do you call them pins? Some of us call them pins. Uh, we call them baskets. We call them targets. 
typically the the center pole is give or take five feet tall and there's a, a basket that's about two foot diameter and about two and a half feet off the ground and then there's a series of chains above the basket and if you've ever seen I don't know if they even exist anymore but they used to make uh, basketball nets out of chain right so wider at the top and narrow at the bottom <clears throat> that's what that's what our chains kind of look like and that allows you to throw a shot that's flat uh, and it hits the chains and drops into the basket and I have to say, when the disc hits the chains, it makes this very satisfying <laughs> sound. That is the, the, the sound of life for many disc golfers. Yeah. So do disc golf courses have tees and greens as golfers would understand them? Tees, yes. Um, of course, our tees, you know, we run up on the tee. And the only golfer who does that is uh, Happy Gilmore, right? So, but the, <laughs> we do we do that almost all the time. So the tees are uh, always, if if possible, a flat, hard surface. Uh, we're experimenting with a lot of different surfaces. You know, uh, rubber has been uh, experimented with over the last couple of decades. Turf is becoming um, popular now. Uh, the king is still concrete in my mind. But the idea is you have to give the players a level, predictable surface for, for players to run up. And so a tee pad, typically on, on my championship courses, we do six feet wide, uh, 12 or 15 feet long. They need to be flush with the ground so that people don't have to step up onto it and so they can't, you know, fall off it. As far as greens... Uh, that is one of the huge, huge, huge differences uh, between our, our versions of, of golf. In, in your version, I mean, the, the greens are like a whole different world, right? All of a sudden, you're using a different, a very different club. The ball is not leaving the surface. It's about reading and pace, right? That doesn't happen with us. You know, we have discs that we call putters and that we use in short range, but they're just kind of taller and rounder than all the other discs we use, right? They're not that that kind of night and day difference that, that traditional golf uses. Um, and so for you, being on the green and being off the green is a big deal. And for us, it's more of a continuum. Right when we're closer, we're using the putter. As we get further out, we're still going to use the putter, um, and the shot is similar. But as we go back, there's no point where we go. Okay, I'm off the green. You know, life is different. So, <clears throat> um, in my mind, there are design elements for our green areas. Um, you know, I still refer to the area around the basket as the green typically, um, but it's it's not at all like what happens in the in the traditional golf world. And I should mention that uh, for those who don't know much about disc golf, that disc golfers use a number of different discs for different situations. I'm not sure how many discs <laughs> disc golfers usually use. Is, is there is there a limit? We do not yet have a bag limit. Um, so it it's you know typically when people are starting out, we recommend just three. 
uh, a driver, a mid-range, and a putter. But, you know, once people get serious about it, they can carry 30 or more and, and uh, may have up to 100 in their uh, arsenal, you know, that they, that they may take out, you know, depending on the course and the weather. So discs will vary in speed which is the biggest factor uh, in terms of distance, but also in the, the carry, the glide, whether they like to go right at all, uh, how much they want to go left, uh, which you know we, we refer to as understable and overstable. And with our discs, <clears throat> even though we're able to curve them, either direction, and believe it or not, we have discs that you can throw that will go to the right, and then come back and break to the left mm. or vice versa. Uh, when, when our discs, particularly drivers, start to slow down, they always fall one way. We call that fade. Um, so a, a right-handed backhand, if it's still in the air and it runs out of gas, it's going to fall to the left every time. And if you throw a, a sidearm or a forehand when it runs for a right-hand or when it runs out of gas, it's going to fall to the right every time. So huge, huge, huge variety in discs. And don't forget, you know, we also do skip shots. We do roller shots. We do upside down shots. And those, you know, different discs are, are, are good for different of those shots. And every model comes in a variety of plastics for more durability, different grip. And every disc comes in a variety of weights, typically between, you know, 145 grams and 175 grams. So it's very different from choosing clubs. And as they age and start to get beat up, they'll fly a little bit. So they can really get seasoned, hmm. you know, club, <laughs> quote unquote, club selection for us is a, a very, can be. Uh, a very uh, complex uh, decision. <laughs> this will be, I think, reassuring to a lot of traditional golfers who get obsessed with their gear, hearing <laughs> that <laughs> there that there is this extent of uh, and variety of equipment in in disc golf. The, the disc is both the ball and the club. It seems like and, yes, and exactly. so it takes on this sort of extra importance. Right, and you can, yes, if you're someone who likes to get obsessed, you can get very obsessed about discs. So. Just generally speaking, if a traditional golfer were to walk onto a disc golf course, what would look different? What would be kind of unfamiliar about that environment? Well, it, the, the first thing you notice is our courses are, are so different from each other, mm. right? I mean, for you if, you, if you've never been to a course before, you know before you get there, par is probably going to be between 68 and 72. The fairways are going to be, you know, give or take a certain width. The par threes are going to be in this range and the fours in this range and the fives in this range. With us, you have no idea what's coming. Uh, there are courses that are more or less wide open uh, with wide fairways. There are courses that are all in the woods where the fairway, you know, instead of a a 350-foot hole with just a couple trees. It could be a 250-foot hole through a five-foot fairway that uh, has a thousand trees. So you you just never know. And I think we probably have 
more variety in terrain too. You know, we love uh, big hills. There's more variety in the type of terrain we use. There's more variety in our design. So the, the, you, you'll probably notice uh, almost always there's no big clubhouse. There's almost never a cart barn. Um, but, you know, once you get on the tee, it's, uh, it's really the same kind of uh, idea. What does it take to maintain a disc golf course? I'm sure this depends on the kind of land that it's on, but, but what are the typical sort of like maintenance standards for a disc golf course? Uh, I would say in general, uh, maintenance on a disc golf course is pretty similar to maintenance in, you know, a city park. The height of the grass is not a big deal for us the way it is for you all. Right. Uh, and that's that's a good thing and a bad thing. So, you know, if we're typically at four or five inches, that's that's fine for us. We just don't want it to be so tall that we can't find our disc. Mm -hmm. So the the you know, species of grass, not a big deal for us. And again, you know, not having the greens uh, as you do where, you know, height species, uh, dryness, all of those factors are so important that that really doesn't happen for us. So uh, we, we actually have more issues with tree branches growing into the fairway because we're so dependent upon trees or, you know, brush growing up. So uh, maintenance is very important to us. And if a, if a course isn't maintained, it becomes much uh, less of an enjoyable experience, but our maintenance is very different from your maintenance. You don't necessarily need an agronomist in the way that a golf course <laughs> might need an agronomist, right? It just to, you know, mow the grass where you need to mow the grass. And I've also noticed that disc golf courses, when they play through these heavily wooded areas, the ground will be natural, right? It'll be dirt, which is the usual kind of natural state of ground that's under a thick canopy of trees that can be part of a disc golf course as well. It, it, it can. I think we're, we're starting to move out of that era a little bit. Hmm. Part of what I try to do in, in my designs in particular is give people more options, you know, when we're, we're, we're in a wooded environment, which means clearing a wider fairway, leaving some trees in the middle for people to go around. I mean, it's almost like having, you know, multiple fairways on the same hole. And what happens when you do that is if you, you get to the point where you're letting more sunlight in, it's going to be easier for you to, um, to have grass in there, which, which is, is a really nice benefit. As a matter of fact, I'm doing one course now uh, in Pennsylvania where uh, after they cleared the most of the wooded holes they went in and, and put seed down and i came back and i mean it was incredible it's, you know for for disc golfers to have you know grassy fairways in the woods uh, we did that in uh, new orleans too at the parc de famille course um where they they seeded everything and it it almost looks like a golf fairway with some of the the trees left so you know, the the difference in, in maintenance um, makes disc golf courses a lot less expensive to build and maintain, even though, you know, we're, we're starting to raise the bar there. But it makes it, you know, less expensive to play, less expensive to install. 
And our thing is, you know, we need to, it's more about discovering the holes out in nature than building them. Now we're, we're doing more building and I don't want to say that golf architects don't discover, but it's a, it's a big uh, difference in emphasis there. We kind of, you know, carve out of the woods. We don't clear cut, you know, I mean, for us, a, a 50 foot fairway in the woods is gigantic. So we're talking a little bit about terrain here, you know, as a golfer, and I'm sure there are many golfers who would disagree with me about this. This is a subject of debate, but to me, the ideal piece of land for a golf course would be attractive links land, right? You have sandy rolling terrain, not many trees, if any firm turf that the ball can roll along interesting contours that have been shaped by the sea sandy base to the soil that you know you can just sort of dig out and you have bunkers that to me is is really the ideal land for a golf course it's where golf began it's where many of the best golf courses are if you were to say what the ideal piece of terrain for a disc golf course would be what would come to mind that is a great question you know our whole thing in design is is to capitalize on the natural assets right you're giving me the opportunity to to say what the natural assets are going to be ahead of time <laughs> um you know and the important thing is is we want to create an experience for the player that emphasizes decision making recovery options you know fairness and widths and, and fairness in rewards for execution. So the, the three things that we always say we look for are mature trees, interesting terrain, and water features. And we're typically happy if we can get two of those, and we're really happy if, if we can get three of those. And the four things that we're, we're always looking to create and these you know i i kind of codified these back in the 90s and you'll recognize them from the golf world uh variety balance character and strategy so we would want interesting terrain what does that mean it's going to be hilly uh it's going to have a a good uh, number of trees because that's what we use for obstacles and we want the design to be complex and rich so the, the the trees are really important water is actually turning out to be a, a topic for debate you water features if you use them right are great you know because you know same thing for us the aesthetics are important so my ideal property uh would have a, a lot of variety in the terrain it would it would be hilly there would be berms and raised areas that we could use for tees and landing areas and greens, um, a lot of slopes. And, you know, like I said, trees and water are, are critical. So those are all aspects of it. And when we need to, you know, we plant trees. We're getting at the point where, you know, we can actually build uh, mounting features. I, I, I just created some really neat uh, mounds because we had the opportunity to do one, but the uh, client's budget was uh, devastated by COVID. Oh. So we're, uh, we're we're keeping that available for uh, for a future project now. So it sounds like earth moving is on the horizon. I was going to ask what kinds of alterations to the landscape you might make in creating a disc golf course. 
is earth moving typically part of it or not? Uh, do you remove trees? Sounds like you sometimes plant trees. Historically, earth moving, not a big deal for us. Uh, but we are, we are headed in that direction cautiously. I really have been focusing on landing areas. Um, and I've been working on well-defined landing areas, you know, on par fours and par fives. You know, again, we want to give the players a, a good footing on landing areas. So, you know, the first time I, I got to work with an excavator, uh, was a revelation for me because I had an area that was rocky and you could hardly walk on it. And the guy went in there and leveled it out and got the rocks out. And I had the, a beautiful, you know, landing area with good footing for the players and, and a slope coming down into it and a slope coming off of it. So it had great risk rewards. Um, so we're, we're just heading that way. I've done, you know, several courses where we've done a little bit of it. Um, most designers haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. I've got some projects coming up where we're going to have more of that opportunity. But I think the first step for us is there are going to be key parts of the fairway, you know, like the landing areas on par fours and fives. We did this at Harmony Bends a little bit where, you know, we're able to create a flat area on the side of a steep slope so that if you hit that landing area you're going to get rewarded with good footing and you'll have a run-up and if you miss it you know you have to deal with the slope so um, we did some of that at the the international disc golf center on the on the wr jackson course and so we are slowly to incrementally heading that way so since about 10 years ago you know you'll you'll see sculpted features on courses here and there but i think as we move forward, we're going to see more of that. So, because man, I'm telling you, working with that excavator was was fun. Intoxicating, <laughs> right? Yeah, a lot of a lot of golf course shapers say that. What does the what do the budgets look like in in terms of time and money, and where are those budgets headed? Well, in terms of money, uh, it's never enough, and in terms of time, championship course for me, I'm typically working two to 300 hours, almost all on site. Some of it obviously is, is going to be at my desk, but it, you know, there's, there's so much variety, Garrett, you know, I'm, I mean, cause there's so much variety in the courses. Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're into the bigger courses, you know, where par is, is in the mid to high sixties. And particularly if it's in a wooded environment, cause a lot of the uh, a lot of the projects that I've been getting the last 10 years where it's basically virgin woods and we have to carve everything out of it. So the biggest budget uh, that we've been involved with so far has been 650000 um, You know, even on the bigger courses, the average by the time it's all said and done is probably closer to 200000 But uh, I am uh, dreaming and ready for starting to see some seven figure budgets uh, because there's so much that uh, that I can do that I that I haven't um, been able to do yet. I, I mean I just I just did a course started a course last year where I got to implement an idea I've been sitting on for 10 years and just never had the right opportunity. What I, what idea was that? It was kind of a split level landing area. One of the hard things for us, and one of the one of the real advantages that I think you have in your game, is you have such a great 
correlation between risk and reward. And you know, if you execute a, a little, little less well than you're hoping, let's say, I mean, you're, you know, you miss the fairway by a little bit. Maybe you're in the first cut, right? So you can recover, but you have to make a great shot. So often in disc golf, historically, you make a little mistake and you got nothing. I mean, you can be in the woods and the only thing you can do is pitch back to the fairway 10 feet and then move up. So that has been a, a real mission for me is to say, you know, small mistake instead of being severely punished deserves an opportunity, right? The opportunity to recover that's been so lacking in disc golf. So this, this split level fairway, if you hit any part of it, you're rewarded with good footing and a, you know, a decent shot up the fairway, but you hit the, the higher part, um, you know, you've got an easier shot from there. You hit the lower part, now you've got more uphill to deal with and, and that kind of thing. So I, I've been real, fortunate so far that I've had several clients that said, look, we want the best course that we can have, you know, given our limitations. And they say, go and, and do what you need to do. I mean, when the owners of Sealer Ranch, uh, after much deliberation, agreed to spend $17,000 to put the bridge out to the island so we could incorporate the island and we have a beautiful par five with a with an actual island green uh i knew that that they were all in so was that island there in the in the yeah it was, it was just about building the bridge out to it <laughs> yes you had to uh up until that point you had to swim or i don't know i think at the narrowest point it's only 70 feet out there but you you couldn't walk out there but they they built the bridge and and we were able to uh, incorporate that uh, into the design. Um, we're just getting into the situation now where I can create water features. I'm not a pond designer by any means, but you know I can I can recommend shapes where we're uh, we're using peninsulas or greens or tees or landing areas and you know where the uh, where the undulations are and the concavities and the ponds and lakes huge ability for us to uh, uh, enhance the strategy when when we have that kind of control so water on disc golf courses you mentioned earlier that it might be something of a, a subject of controversy in the disc golf world but just considering the relationship that players have with their discs <laughs> what's a, when when you have a water hazard on a disc golf course and somebody throws their disc into it what happens then <laughs> uh well they lose a stroke <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I probably shouldn't comment on on some things that that might happen at that at that point but let's say you know from a design perspective if it's used properly, if people have the opportunity to play around it and play safe, that is key. Some courses at this point maybe don't always offer that. But if you add to the the risk, you know, and, and, you, and you use the water feature so that it's beneficial to play close to it, but you don't want to get in it, that's a huge deal. And I'll just tell you real quick, I don't, I don't know if you've seen this, but... There are a lot of courses, you know, where they don't have the water, they don't have the natural terrain, and the designers, particularly for tournaments, they'll just put down rope and pretend that that's a pond. And, you know, obviously that can enhance the strategy, 
but it's not the same, right? I mean, aesthetics are important to us just as they are to you. And for someone to, to be on the wrong side of the rope and say, you know, I'm high and dry and you're telling me I have to take a stroke, psychologically, it's, it's very different. So, you know, I'm not a fan. I would much prefer water. And look, we're, we're at a stage in our development where we're trying different things and what works and what doesn't. And if somebody said, look, I, I don't have water. What am I supposed to do? I'm not looking to pick a fight. I'm just saying it's preferable to have real water than just kind of pretending. So it's, it's not for me. And, you know, to me, I may have to spend another 10 or 20 hours on that hole to get it to where it plays with sufficient strategy with, without having to put rope down. But, you know, to me, that's worth it. If your disc goes in the water, do you go in after it? I, again, I'm uh, under legal advice. I probably, <laughs> you can you can use your you can use your imagination yeah okay so as far as strat as far as hazards are concerned on a disc golf course we've talked about water that's obviously one it seems to me that trees in disc golf are almost like bunkers in traditional golf in that they are kind of the primary standard hazard that creates strategy on a hole you know, golf is played on the ground, you have to hit the ball off the ground. So obviously inconsistencies on the ground create a kind of hazard for traditional golfers. Disc golfers play the sport through the air and trees obstruct their paths through the air. Could you talk about how trees are used on disc golf holes and how they create what you would consider strategy? Yes, I love that question. And let me be clear, we love trees, we need trees, right? Sometimes we have no choice but to remove them. But even in the cases where, you know, it's, it's solid woods and we have to do something to, to create the fairways, um, my job is, is to discover, you know, the bigger trees, the nice groupings of trees and, and work around those. I don't ever put a design on paper and say, okay, go cut this shape out of the woods. And, and you're absolutely right about the playing surface. And, and when you come down to it, that may be the biggest difference and the biggest challenge for us. Like I said, you know, you, you have the first cut um, and it's clear that people don't want to be in that, all right? It makes no difference to us. Sand traps, so critical to traditional golf, mean nothing to us, right? We would just stand in it and throw out of it. I've actually been been trying to figure out if there is a analogous thing in disc golf to a fried egg and I haven't I haven't been able to figure that out but maybe maybe getting stuck in a tree uh well getting stuck in a tree yeah uh, actually used to be if you were above two meters it used to be a stroke penalty oh. we got rid of that although some designers can still use it if they want so if you're if you're stuck in a tree you bring your lie straight down and you may be behind the tree uh, which I think is is what you were getting at. So we need to we need to ensure um, a variety of shots and a variety of fairway shapes because we want it to be you know a complex and and rich experience. So don't forget we're we're able to go around trees right in ways that you can and you know using the skip shot or the roll shot sometimes we can go underneath things so we need to have a 
variety of fairway widths, a variety of shot shapes. And so it's been a challenge and, and really a mission for me to try to find a way to use whatever we have, which is primarily trees, the way golf designers use the different cuts of grass and sand traps. So I try to get to where if you make a small mistake and you're, you know, you're not in an ideal position where you have a fair, let's say a 60 to 80% opportunity to get to where you want to on the next shot, you've missed the fairway a little bit. I want to make sure, you know, that you have the ability to recover. So the primary thing that I do is take that area, quote unquote, off the fairway and open it up enough to open some alleys for you so that, you know, now you've got to hit instead of a 10 to 20 foot gap, now you've got to hit a four to five foot gap. And if you can hit that shot, you can still save your birdie or save your par as the case may be. But being able to, to do that, which is very time consuming and, you know, it's, it, it, takes, it takes a lot of work to do it. It's very difficult because, you know, if I miss the fairway by a foot or if I miss it by three feet, I still want, you know, both of those players to, to have an opportunity to recover. But basically creating secondary and tertiary gaps off the fairway for, for people to recover. Now, there's, there's other ways to do that. Um, than just, you know, making tight gaps uh, by using the elevation and the, the angle that the player requires. Sometimes the, the area you have to throw through is height limited instead of just left and right. So those are all techniques, difficult, but to me really important techniques so that we give people the opportunity to recover um, from mistakes. Because that's such an important part of the golf experience, I think, right? I mean, that's what shot do you talk about at the end of the day, right? When you're with your friends, it's like, oh, my God, I, you know, I was really in a bind. I didn't know if I could get out of there. And I just hit it perfectly or I threw it perfectly and I saved my birdie. You know, those are those are the ones that you talk about. And right, those are the ones that, that keep you coming back in a lot of instances. So being able to create that for people is is really important and i realized several years ago that if i can get better at what i do people will enjoy the experience of playing the course and not even be able to say why right because it has to work and it has to look natural it can't feel contrived they just have to say yeah you know i i I got in trouble, I made some great shots, and I can't put my finger on it, but I, I loved playing that course. That's so true that, that good good design is often not noticed by the player who nonetheless is having a lot of fun, even if they don't know how to express why. Yes, exactly. And of course, the downside of it, which I'm sure all uh, golf course architects are familiar with is is the end result is people go oh, I could have designed that 
<laughs> that looks easy. What's what's the big deal, <laughs> right? That, that but that's where you want to be. It's like, well, you know, I mean, what what, what does it take? You, you 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 throw some bunkers out there, and you, you know, you put some mounds, and you undulate the green, and what's uh, what's the big deal? But the truth is, there are hundreds of things that that go into the decision making process, and that if you if you do it right, people can just enjoy it, and you know, don't don't even know how much you really did, right? So it sounds like what you're talking about with trees and gaps between trees is essentially creating different options with differing levels of risk and reward, yes. both off the tee and on recovery. So off the tee, maybe you have a gap that's pretty wide, but kind of takes you the long way around or doesn't give you that great of an angle to the pin or the basket and a narrow gap that kind of takes you straight there and if you hit it you're great but if you don't hit it then you're screwed but then on the second shot if you're if you're off the beaten path of the hole then you have again another set of gaps between trees another set of options to choose between and decide what level of risk you're willing to bear does that sound does that resonate with you yes you're exactly right and that's that's another thing that i really focus on i mean for me the the concepts of strategy and the goals of design are similar in golf and disc golf but how we achieve that is going to be very different right and one of the most obvious things is you know you can be standing on a tee and have two or three or four completely different routes that you can take right and anybody go well i you know i can make a hole with four routes but you have to balance all the options, right? So like you said, this route is easier off the tee. You know, I'm not, I'm not likely to get in trouble, but even if I hit it well, I'm not going to be in, in as good a position as if I take the riskier route and I nail it and I'm exactly where I want to be. So to me, the first level is if I can make a hole with a bunch of different options, and different players take different routes, that's a win. But the bigger win is when one individual player, every time they step up to the hole, um, will say, well, I tried it this way last time and, and it really didn't work. So I'm thinking about going this way. Um, or, you know, my left to right shot really isn't working today, so I'm, I'm gonna do that. And it's so important for me because because back in the old days when I first started playing, there was only one way to play every hole. I knew before I got out of the shower that morning that on hole 16, I was going to throw a rock at this particular angle and 75% of, of full power and it was going to work or, or it isn't. So you guys, course management and strategy is such a big part of your game. And I've been trying to to bring that into into our game, and you know, just so you know, all that becomes so much harder for us because we have such a huge spectrum of skills between beginning players and players who are really good. So, and you you tell me if you think I have my numbers wrong here, but but say a young, uh, fairly athletic person who's never played golf before. You can, you know, give them a lesson and put them on the range for a couple hours. And odds are that first day, uh, that person's going to hit a ball 200 yards. 
something like that De- depends on gender and age uh, i suppose but but yeah i mean i think it's fair to say uh generally that if somebody's pretty strong and athletic even if they don't have great technique and even if they aren't keeping the ball on the face of the planet then they can they can hit the ball a pretty long ways almost almost right away it, it, yeah so the right not consistently yeah but it's doable right. and, and let's do apples to apples let's say a, a young athletic male who hits 200 yards and last time i checked you're you're kind of middle of the pack on the pga tour if you're averaging 260 right it's a little more than that now okay but uh, but i i think you know the point that you're building towards is that golfers even though there's a big disparity between the distance that a professional, that a male professional hits the ball and a male amateur in his 20s or 30s hit the ball, even though there's a pretty big difference, that difference in disc golf. Exactly. Massive. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not even, if people think it's big in traditional golf, in disc golf, I've seen some of these professionals throw the disc. Oh, my God. Exactly. So, so let's say our, our, our guy in our example is, you know, maybe 70% of the way to middle of the pack PGA guys, right? The gods of golf, day one, not consistently, but in disc golf, uh, you can start and work your butt off for a month to get to 300 feet. And I mean, I know people who, you know, been playing for years and can't throw 300 feet. And that is, half or maybe even a little less than half of what the what the top pros can throw so you know what what kind of challenge does that make for the designer knowing that all these different people have to be able to use the course and enjoy it and par has to make sense for them and and all that so you know and, and and part of it comes from the the design of the discs right as as we make discs that can go farther some people who are beginners may not even be able to take advantage of that technology. So it's kind of the rich get richer. I don't know if that's true with drivers. I mean, I, I kind of assume if you give me a driver with a big head, I'm going to be able to hit farther. Is that not the case? Yeah, but what you're talking about is pretty much exactly the case in traditional golf right now in the sense that the design of the driver face and the spin model of the golf ball makes it so that players with a lot of club head speed can take advantage of those things in a way that a normal person would never imagine doing. And so it sounds like there's, there's, is there a technology debate right now in disc golf? <laughs> is, are, are people worried about where disc technology is going? Uh, uh, yes. However, in, in one sense, we're like the golf world in that the average person that says, wow, you're going to let me hit it farther. You're going to give me more spin control, you know, give me, give me, give me. And, you know, you're not worried about courses being obsolete for them. But because of, you know, where our, our design is, I mean, almost everything gets obsoleted as the technology changes and as the players get better, right? They're getting better conditioned and they're now that they're making more money, they can train more, you know, they don't have to be working a job. You know, you can quit your job and go on tour more or less. So that, that all is part of it. So this is, we're talking sort of about things that are happening now, things that are changing in disc golf. Last question here. How do you hope, disc golf design 
evolves in the future? Or where do you think disc golf design is going? Is there going to be a response to the increasing distances that the elite players are throwing the disc? Are, are there going to be changes related to more courses being built or greater budgets being spent on courses? What do you think the next, you know, what, 10, 20 years look like in, in your field? Well, I, you know, the sport is growing so, it, it seems like it's growing so rapidly and, and it is, but if you look back, it's been, it's been really steady over the last few decades. You know, you mentioned, I think maybe before we started that you'd seen disc golf on ESPN two recently. That's a huge step for us to have the finals of the disc golf pro tour covered on ESPN two, uh, an hour for the, for the men and an hour for the women and did well enough that it got replayed again a few weeks later, and I think maybe even a third time. So there is so much in our future. And with more players, bigger purses, you know, no doubt, we always want better courses. And, you know, property owners understand that disc golfers are like traditional golfers in that they love their sport so much they will travel. They will plan vacations around disc golf. They will choose where they take a job based on disc golf. They will choose where they go to school based on disc golf. And so when when those factors become an opportunity to bring income to a community or to a facility, you know, whereas 20 years ago, a city would put in a disc golf course and it'd just be a drain on their budget. But now if I can build a private facility and I'm going to get greens fees, I'm going to get lodging and the economic impact that comes with it, that just gives everybody an incentive to keep raising the bar, which I'm excited about because I have a vision um, for kind of the next level of what happens in course design. And then I have a vision for for what happens after that. So, you know, keep, keeping in mind that, you know, designing a disc golf course is a different set of skills from designing a golf course that, you know, we're going to have different needs, as you brought up in terms of, you know, the type of properties, but we're getting better properties, we're getting better budgets, uh, we can we can do more in the design than we've been able to do, and all that will allow us to make the experience not only more enjoyable for everybody, but as you said, to make the tournament courses more challenging and more fair and more rewarding for the top players. So I mean, believe me, I have a vision for all kinds of design features and, and player experiences that we have not had the opportunity to create yet. We are absolutely headed that way. There's so much that we haven't done or so much that we've just kind of put our toe in the water and um, very, very bright uh, future. You know, those bigger budgets are gonna be there and it's gonna be worth it because, you know, whoever puts up the money is going to reap the rewards from the from the players that they get. So tell all your people in the golf world, start uh, start setting some money aside for disc golf. It's going to be worth it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, from a golf perspective, something that is so tremendously, a number of things are, are tremendously appealing about disc golf to me. A couple of things about the courses that I've noticed. 
one and you talked about this the courses the designs are about finding things in the landscape and that that's how golf really used to be more there are designers in traditional golf who do that now but you know these courses are so natural and it's just lovely how the good holes use the landscape and use the natural features there but then at the same time you know the fact that they're natural allows them to be accessible allows the green fees to be very low and and that's really appealing as well and so i wonder if you're at all worried about that aspect of disc golf going away as more money and more popularity comes to the sport two things one i think the old school city park free to play courses are not going away those are far into our future always going to be there so people don't have to worry about you know oh my god we're building you know these big disc golf resorts or, or whatever's coming and we're going to lose where we came from okay that's that's not going to happen number two for me you're absolutely right right uh, using the natural features is where we come from it is a big appeal for the sport and for our, our clientele. So I feel like I need to, to stay on that path. There's going to be times when, you know, this natural feature isn't quite big enough for me to use as a landing area. So maybe, you know, I need to, to do a little bit to make it a little bigger, maybe augment it. But I don't see us saying, okay, we're going to seed it like a golf course. And we don't, it'll, we can look beautiful without doing that, and we don't need that. So somebody said to me, you know, if you if you had an unlimited budget and you could build whatever features you wanted to and put the you know big trees wherever you wanted to, I I'm not sure I'd I'd want to do it that way. I mean, it's it's great to have more control, right? But using the natural features also make every course different from from all the rest so yes i want to i want to have that creative control and be able to you know make the slopes that i want and the flat areas that i want and the and the water features that i want but it's always got to stay in line with where disc golf came from and i mean my god look look at look at the backlash you know that golf has had over the years from using fertilizers and chemicals and you know we don't need to go there right and we live in an era where that is even more frowned upon than it used to be so the natural aspect of it is very important i want to be able to keep innovating within that tradition and, and framework that disc golf has um, yeah, would I would I love to be able to plant a, a huge tree somewhere as opposed to planting a 15 foot tree and waiting for it to grow? Sure, but uh, I think I think you're absolutely right. We we would be disappointing our own clientele if we got too far away from just being out there in nature is such a big part of it. Um, so yes, bring on the big budgets. Don't forget to hire a great designer. We'll keep it natural looking and, and uh, we'll make it fun for everybody and challenging for the top pros. That is all doable. I've, I've seen it. We're going to get there. <laughs>